up on today's show, Ottawa unveils their new gun control, focused primarily on handguns. We'll chat with the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. The trust that binds Canada together is cracking. There's no doubt. And a warning, without intervention, super pigs could soon be all over our province. Some of your texts, um, this listener says, handguns are completely useless as it is in Canada. You can't use them for hunting or defense. I don't see the big deal. They're basically toys for indoor shooting ranges. FYI, I own six guns. Now, that's not um, the prevailing opinion on our text line, I don't think. A lot of people a lot of people concerned more than anything about the handgun uh, legislation. This listener says the new handgun bill targets the wrong people. To, stay, to say it will stop handgun crime is missing the point that law-abiding owners are not committing the crimes. Using their logic, we may as well ban vehicle ownership as vehicles account for more deaths and injuries than firearms. Um, Similar sentiment from a number of you. Uh, I'm going to get some reaction now from the uh, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. We're going to chat with Rod Giltaka, who is president of that organization. He joins us now. Rod, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me, Shane. Uh, Let's just walk through the the main points of this legislation, starting with the one that seems to have the most controversial uh, slant to it and one people are reacting to most, and that is a national freeze on importing, buying, or selling handguns in Canada. Your response to that provision of this legislation? Well, I mean, it's it's purely political. It's for optics. Um, It's uh, it's very divisive, and the reason for that is is that. The Trudeau government has come out and said, you know, we, we see all this handgun violence. We're taking concrete action to address it. So they're, they're, they're banning handguns exclusively from licensed firearm owners. And I mean, you know, I think most people, um, well, they may or may not know that, that handguns are, are extremely tightly regulated in Canada. It takes six months to even get a license to own a handgun. They're registered. The government knows who has them. The, the, we have strict laws around storage and transportation. They can only be used at the shooting range. People go through, they, there's a lot of commitment required to be a handgun owner and full accountability, including daily background checks, just to own these things. And for some reason, the government's like, hmm, there's your problem. And, and police across the country have said, Licensed gun owners aren't a problem, so nothing could be missed the mark uh, further. Okay, now just to push back a little bit there, Rod, he was he was asked about that this morning. You said it was a ban on handguns. It's not a ban. It, he calls it a freeze or a cap, or you can't sell it anymore. But his point is, you know what, we're not targeting legal gun owners. If you have a handgun right now, nobody's gonna, nothing changes for you. Everything is exactly the same if you're licensed, and all the rules still apply. We're just saying we're not going to allow any more to be sold in Canada. Right, so it's actually a ban, and it's uh, it's using a, a scheme that's called grandfathering. So this is very similar to short-barreled handguns uh, back in the early 90s when they were banned. So everyone that had them could keep them, could continue to use them, but no one else can can ever become a, a, a handgun owner. Right. So it is. I mean, whether they call it a freeze or not, that's that's exactly the same thing as they did as, as they did earlier. So no one today that is an upstanding citizen can ever participate in a shooting sport with handguns. And the existing uh, shooting sports with handguns across the country, including the clubs and dealers and the, the, all, everything, will slowly collapse. Yeah. And you know, and, and again, if the if the if the the objective is public safety, you know, listen to police. Police are saying. Licensed handgun owners, no problem. This is James Raymer, the, the chief of police in, in Toronto, including his acting deputy chief, Myron Demke. Both said flat out, 
We have no problem with licensed gun owners. We have a problem with criminal groups and smuggle handguns. Now, we'll have to wait and see because, you know, he did say yesterday they're planning on increasing criminal penalties and providing more tools to investigate firearm crimes and strengthening border measures. We don't have the details, so it's not like that's being completely overlooked, but you think that should be the focus of handgun legislation? Absolutely. You know, we have we have a gang problem. Uh, we have um, and we have a problem with criminal activity, even outside of gangs. Uh, these are these are issues that affect Canadians the most, and this is where all the focus should be. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, uh, on uh, on May first, twenty twenty, there was a massive uh, rifle ban. Um, to buy those guns back is going to cost probably two billion dollars. The government itself thinks a billion. So <laughs> when it came to the long gun registry, it was one thousand times over budget. Uh, so I think uh, doubling would be pretty reasonable. Um, two billion dollars on taking my rifles uh, away and paying me for them, and $200 million in investing in root causes of violence in communities. So you can just, you, you know, all you need to do is look through the details. You understand that this is a political exercise. It's punishing people that probably wouldn't vote liberal, and, and this is what it's all about. It's not about public safety. It's terrible. Well, I mean, you say that, though, but but listen, I mean, just the latest stats in terms of polling and surveys around Canadians, four in five Canadians say they support a ban on assault-style weapons. 61% say they're in favor of banning handguns. So it's not just people who vote Liberal, Rod. A lot of the Canadian support is there for gun control. Well, I mean, I, I mean we support certain gun control. Yeah. We su- we're not anti-regulation, right? But it has to be regulation that makes sense. Now, polls, if you look at there's a huge problem on Twitter with people that run polling companies like Frank Graves and, and others that are on there screaming about gun control, and I'm supposed to trust data that comes from that company. But nonetheless, um, polls, when you call someone up at, at dinner time and say, do you want to ban assault rifles? Like, who would say no to that? Right? But they're, they're not banning assault rifles. They're banning semi-automatic rifles that have been in Canada for since for 60 years. So polling polling isn't the entire answer. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to whether or not people are voting, 18% of the population voted liberal in the last election. So there's 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 a lot going on here. And government also has a responsibility to act in a responsible manner to say where is the problem, how do we best use our resources, and how do we protect the freedom and ability for people just to live unimpeded. And right now, the answer is, it doesn't matter what the question is, Shane, the answer is more government. Yeah. The answer is, get the government to use force against people and take their things. That's the only answer on the table with the liberals. And it's really, it's, it, whether people see it as a problem now, they will see it as a problem later when it's their turn. It's, a, it's an issue. Um, okay, and as you say, your organization does support gun control or some restrictions as long as they make sense to you. Let's walk through some of the other ones here quickly. Um, sure. Pulling licenses from people involved in acts of domestic violence or criminal harassment. To me, that seems like a no-brainer. Do you agree with that? Of course. Uh, yes, absolutely. That, yeah, that one seems Aussie. Uh, same thing, you know, the red flag laws. There's some discussion around that because we kind of already have these red flag laws, right? I mean, you already have, if you get yourself in trouble and a, and a judge deems that you are a danger to yourself or others, they can take steps to remove your firearms already, right? Absolutely, they can. And, and have th- those laws have been in place since the early 90s. Okay. The one that seems to have some people support it, some people don't like it. Uh, help me out. Uh, how do you feel about the permanently altered magazines for these quote-unquote rifles? Uh, they have to be permanently altered so they can never hold more than five rounds. Right now, they have to be at least temporarily altered. Is this a big deal? 
No, they've always had to be permanently altered. And it looks like this is just um, a repeat of their previous bill, C-21, that didn't pass last time around before the election. And this is um, a, a completely meaningless duplicate law. Right now, if you have a firearm magazine that holds more than the prescribed number of rounds, it's a prohibited device, okay. and you'll go to jail for that. So what, now they're saying, but if you're the one that altered it, you'll go to jail. If I have possession of it, I'm going. To, I'm going to jail regardless. So, this is this is fluff. Um, you cannot legally possess firearm magazines that have more that can accept more than the prescribed number of rounds today. Okay, going back to this, Prime Minister says we're not targeting legal gun owners. If you have legal guns, you can keep them. We just don't want more guns. We don't need more guns. We're putting a cap on how many handguns we're allowing into the market, and we're going to deal with. having the illegal guns. Always the response is, you're targeting the wrong people. You should be targeting the illegal guns. How do the gun control or the the firearms advocates say that should be done? You always say that the governments are doing it wrong. So what's the right way? How do you deal with handgun crime? You can't deny that it's going up. It's very high in some of the major cities. How does that get dealt with in a way that deals with it and doesn't upset you? Well, um, it's, well, I guess, uh, first of all, it's, it's not up to me to do the government's job for them, but certainly we can, we can throw some ideas around. Um, when you look at uh, criminal behavior with handguns, it's almost all attributed to organized crime, like gangs, yeah. and then other criminal activities um, to do with, with drugs and human trafficking and other things, even if they're not organized. Like, that's the, almost all of that. Yes. All of handgun crime is, rely, is related to those groups. So you need to figure out how you're going to stop them from committing criminal activity. And one of the big things is, and it's controversial, is bail reform. What we see time and time again, and I'm, we're talking hundreds of times per year, are people that were involved in gunplay in downtown Toronto or Vancouver being caught by police and turned out 24 hours later. And will reoffend obtaining a gun or getting the gun that they were able to get rid of, retrieving it and getting into gunplay again. And this is what we see in cities. And this is why people are so outraged about handguns. And so they should be, because it's, that's a reasonable emotional response. Because they're like, you know, there's, there's, there's bullets flying all over the place. That's true. So the way that you deal with that is to deal with the people. And it's only a handful Law enforcement across the country have had this, these discussions with government. Government's not listening. But they're saying it's a really small number of people committing the overwhelming majority of these crimes. So somehow we have to figure out whether it's change, a change in legislation or a change in policy or whatever. When you get a hold of these people, you keep them in jail. Because if they're not on the street, almost like the same argument with less guns, less whatever. If, if these people aren't on the street, they're not, they're not shooting guns on the street. And they're not trafficking no, firearms yeah. either. We've got to get tough on the people that are doing these things, not people like me. I, yeah, I think most people agree with that. Uh, I, I don't know how you do that, though. I, I, once they're con- caught, and you know what, the police associations across the country are with you in terms of when it comes to bail reform, not letting people out if they've used a firearm, that's it. You, you don't have bail as easily as you do now. And also bringing in mandatory minimums if you commit offenses with, with firearms. Those are both proposals that a lot of police associations are urging the government to make as well. So I think you got you got some firm footing. And that makes perfect sense to me, too. Absolutely. If you want to crack down on the people who are using guns illegally, go ahead and do it. I mean, it makes perfect sense. So, uh, well, first, you know what, Shane? Yeah. You know what, Shane? One more thing. Um, gun crime in downtown Toronto 
it was never lower than when carding was in place. And carding is there's it's problematic. There's some issues with carding. Yeah. But I've spoken to Toronto police officers, and they said carding made a huge difference. And when we got rid of carding, because and I'm not and I'm not saying that there aren't issues. There are issues with that, and those need to be confronted. But what some people are saying is like, well, someone that would get ID'd a couple of times a month is too objectionable. That's a bridge too far. But to take Rod Giltaka's guns in Vancouver because of shootings in downtown Toronto is like, well, this only makes common sense. So we know what works. There are things that we have done that worked, but they're not politically palatable. And so I guess I think Canadians need to figure out whether they want to solve the problems or whether they want to continue to divide Canadians and play politics and just let these problems run rampant. So that's one example for you. Excellent. Rod, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. You bet. That is Rod Giltaka, who is president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. Uh, Appreciate Rod joining us. I have some concerns about the state of democracy in this country. Nothing like uh, the concerns I have about the state of democracy in the United States. I think the system there is broken, uh, perhaps irreparably. I'm not sure. The damage done to me is is sad and scary. Um, And it's not the same here. However, however, having said that, I can see people who want us to go down that road. And we've taken a couple of steps down that road. And it bothers me. Politics in many ways in our country right now, if you think about it, it has all the depth of a finger bowl for a lot of people, right? There's no, there's no discussion. There's no actual, we don't even get to the point of discussing policy. Policy doesn't even enter into the picture for a lot of people. We don't debate the merit of an idea. Um, it, who's it come from? That's it. That's all we need to know in some cases. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, F. Trudeau is a perfectly comprehensive and totally electable platform uh, for some voting blocks in this country. We have all kinds of politicians that are more than happy to take full advantage of that. And you know what? It, it, to be fair, it does go the other way. I don't know if it's to the same extent, but it certainly does uh, in this province. Just think about, you know, the UCP could, could solve world hunger and they'd still get attacked in some corners, right? Because it's the same thing. The, the, the politics is so divisive and, and partisan and tribal, not among everybody, but by a lot of people. And politics is politics. It's always been this way to some extent, and it always will. But right now, um, along with the tribal partisanship, there's there's something more ominous. It's not just supporting your guy anymore. It it goes beyond that. And that's where we get into a scary situation. So to walk through that with us, we have David McLaughlin joining us, who is president and CEO of the Institute on Governance. David, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. No, happy to do so, Shay. Now, you wrote this piece in the Globe and Mail about this subject matter. You call it the erosion of the trust that binds Canada together, the more mm-hmm. vital piece of this degradation of democracy I was talking about. What do you see that troubles you in terms of um, the destruction of this trust? Well, a lot of what you actually said in your, uh, in your opening. Um, I think you, you nailed it in, in, in many ways. You, uh, you talked about tribes. Uh, and, and you talked about where ideas and, and, 
uh, come from, where, uh, you know, who's saying what. I mean, these have become the kind of the touchstones for, for a lot of Canadians in terms of, of assessing and filtering the information that we get and therefore our, our, uh, our political and, and public policy choices. And that's not healthy for democracy. I mean, it's uh, uh, what you end up having then is, and then what we've been seeing, is political parties and leaders and institutions that are that are wrapped around them all catering to the increasingly to those sort of tribal voices to those to their base to those uh, to the you know uh, people who are have uh, are singularly concerned about one or two things but not about the rest of, of what matters in society uh, or focused with their anger with anger and grievance or alienation etc that's not healthy and and it's not healthy for uh, a number of reasons I uh, I think you're quite right in that uh, in your opening you said we're not the same as, as the US no we're right. not uh, there is no January 6th exact moment you know, coming up, I, I, I'm with you absolutely on that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful and cautious and worried about totally. it. Let's preserve our, our democracy the way we want. And I just feel, as do others, it's on a trend that's heading in the wrong way. And these kinds of things that we're talking about in ter- uh, of where people are getting information, so it's misinformation, the anger and alienation out there that is forcing people to look at more extreme sort of solutions and ideas instead of what's maybe best for the country as a whole, and the way that our public institutions, that's governance, that's where we come in, that which is really the way we do things. It's the plumbing of our democracy, and we're not paying enough attention to that. We're looking for workarounds, and we're trying to MacGyver everything to fit or fix things that work for our interest as opposed to the broader national interest. So I think there's a whole sort of cornucopia, if you will, Shay, yeah. of those things coming together. And David, I think you make a great point when you talk about the, you know, the, the institutions, the plumbing, the, the, the infrastructure yeah. of democracy in this country. Um, we're always going to have people who just hate the opposing politician. It doesn't matter sure. what happens. But the scary thing for me, the step beyond that is when you start to question the actual institutions, be it Bank of Canada, for example, or some of Bank these of other Canada. institutions yeah. of democracy. When you start to undermine them, the entire system is vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of what's next. It's a very much a slippery slope. And and why this feels so urgent now and, and, and feels so so wrong is uh, just go back It's his, 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 to our own history, to the way we are. I mean, what's the phrase that people most remember about Canada's constitution? It's peace, order, and good government. Right. Right? It's, it's, that comes from the British North America Act. It's what I call it's the BNA, right, British North America Act, but that's really our constitutional DNA. I mean, good governance is baked in to how we formed as a nation, how we came together in confederation, and how we've grown from that. Now, a lot of pressures, a lot of stresses, now I've been building up over time that's causing people to question that and get a work around that. But that's very different. And so it's jarring. I, you know, it's really jarring from where we've been before. And we don't have a roadmap for where this might take us. And so good governance is legitimacy. If you, for, if, if you give everybody a voice or the right, the opportunity to have a voice, if you take that into consideration, but your elected people then make that decision, then you're going to, and, and people accept that, then you're going to have legitimacy for that decision. You need, you know, there's an old phrase, you need good, good winners and you need good losers in a democracy for things to work. And we're certainly not seeing that in other countries. And this is sort of a, a, a cri de coeur, you know, a cry from the heart to others to say, pay attention because bad stuff can happen here too. Um, 
David, whenever we discuss this on this show, I always ask the guest, and I don't have the answer, and I, I hope you do. Um, where does this come from? Is it led by uh, people that I would say are less than principled politicians who are more than willing to trade in this kind of politics, knowing full well that it's risky business, but there's bang for their buck there? Or yeah. are they being led there by voters who are demanding this kind of politics? Where does It's a chicken or an egg discussion. Uh, where do you fall? It's a, it is a bit of a chicken and egg discussion. And um, uh, I, at the end of the day, uh, I hold leaders to a higher account. Like if, if, and if we don't as a democracy, then we're just selling ourselves short as voters. So when leaders cater to that, when they truck and trade, as we say, in that kind of dialogue, then uh, they are diminishing and demeaning our, ourselves as voters and, and our democratic uh, traditions. And they're doing it for the reasons we know. It's, uh, it works yes. in certain states. But, but look, we're coming to a situation now where, you know, tell me the last time we had a, a, a government, a, a national government, a, a federal government that got more than 40% of the vote. Yeah. Like we're into, you know, the you know, 30s and 32, 33, may, you know, if anybody even got 35 percent we'd almost treat it like a massive majority you know government and change that's where we're at and so people are catering increasingly to that minority fringe part of the conversation we need to find ways to bring those folks into our traditional approaches i'm not talking at all i would never accept that we keep them away but we got to find a way to bring them in and filter that their their views in a way that we can show them and they get a voice in a solution, but it may not be the perfect solution. But you tell me whenever we, you know, when was the last time we had a perfect policy solution for everybody? It's not the way it works. That's why I say good winners, good losers. We tend to accept that in our democratic traditions, increasingly less and less so. So I'm not going to give leaders a pass on this. I understand it. I've worked that sort of side before. I get it. But I don't think we should give them a pass on it. We've got to find a way to take those voices that are becoming increasingly toxic, that are concerned, alienated. We risk our democracy if we don't listen to them. I don't want to cut them out. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that we channel them and we privilege them and, and turn our political parties over to them or our public policies, boy, that's, that's a very risky business. Final question then, of course, is how do we do that? Who does that? I don't have faith in the leaders, like you say, who, yep. who, who engage in the trade in this kind of politics. They're going to continue because it benefits them. It, does it fall yep. on us, the voter, to just roundly and soundly reject that kind of politics in Canada? Well, as a Democrat, I would say absolutely. I mean, that's always the best thing, right? You know, at the end of the day, the voters, uh, you know, they're 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 not uh, they're not always right, but they're never wrong. <laughs> the saying goes, right? You know, we have to, because we have to accept those those choices. But one of the things that we work on at the Institute on Governance is is the role of public servants. At the end of the day, the constant between our political parties and the change of leaders is our public service. And, and and public servants in many ways stepped up during COVID. Now we've given them a, whole, a hard time, and we challenged them in that. But in, for the most part, they found ways to adapt and innovate, and and kept us safe. And at times, it's like it's hard, and it was it wasn't perfect. But at the constant of our institutions, our public institutions, as you just say, the Bank of Canada, the role of Parliament, the role of our regulatory bodies. You know, whether it's an energy regulator and how they engage with with uh, uh, Indigenous uh, uh, First Nations or with with farmers or ranchers, others who have different views like those those public institutions and public servants, they're the constant. And so I think we have to spend more time looking at how they play into this. And I think that will help us. That's good governance. That's good plumbing. Let's pay attention to the plumbing. 
Interesting. Interesting aspect. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's, that's how government works. We, we yeah. focus on the people that are just sort of the, the, the elected officials, but government works with the public service. Yeah, very good point. David, great discussion. I appreciate it very much. Spider pig, spider pig, does whatever a spider pig does. Can he swing from a web? No, we can't. He's a pig. Look out, he is a spider pig. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Spider pig by Homer Simpson. We're not talking about spider pigs, but it's the closest we could find because I don't know if there's ever been in the history of cartoons a super pig. I don't think so. Has there, Sarah? You, you're, you're a comic nerd, right? Yes. yes. Has there ever been a super pig? Um, it's been a super the spider monkey. verse. There was a spider pig. Oh, in the, in the actual Spider Man? In the into the Spider Verse, yes. Which but not was a the super cartoon pig. one. Yeah, I never saw that one. Okay, I don't like yeah, that well, one. He was a, yeah. he was a pig, Spider Man. But not an actual super pig. Like there was a super monkey and there was a super dog. Yes. Well, he was a super pig. There was a super pig. Yes, the spider pig. No, Spider Pig wasn't a super pig. He was a spider pig. <laughs> you can't be a spider pig and a super pig. You're a spider pig or a super pig. He was a superhero pig. Right, okay. But he wasn't called super pig. No, he was like spider ham or something. Right, okay. Um, well, we're, the reason we're talking about super pigs is because we've got them in Alberta now. At least that's what they're being called by our next guest. We've, we've talked about this before, right? Wild boars spreading across Alberta, causing all kinds of concern and worry. Well, the next thing that we had talked about and we had worried about has apparently started to happen. In the northeastern Alberta town of Lamont, from Sarah's stomping grounds out two hills away, um, people who live in that community have been told they need to be on the lookout for for wild boars, super pigs, uh, because they've moved into town and there's actual warnings going out to the people saying, hey, if you run into a, a, a boar, this is the way to behave because they're dangerous. I mean, they're not only destructive, they're dangerous. So we're going to chat now with Ryan Brook, who is an associate professor of agriculture at the University of Saskatchewan and director of the Canada Wild Pig Research Project. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. So this development in Lamont in northeastern Alberta, does it surprise you? Probably not, right? You expected this? Well, unfortunately, I have a long history over the last almost 13 years of uh, raving, uh, waving a red flag yeah. and saying these are huge concerns getting ignored and then uh, becoming exactly what I predicted. So no, unfortunately, we're not surprised. This is exactly what pigs do globally. These these things are a global menace in all continents except uh, Antarctica, and uh, this is exactly what pigs do. They expand exceedingly rapidly in urban areas, but they also are very comfortable uh, establishing in cities. Even, you know, you go to Berlin, and they have a very well-established wild boar problem in a massive city like that, and same in the southern U.S. as well. So, yeah, urban pigs is a concern, and, of course, one of the challenges is that they start to have different impacts. You know, we worry about crop damage out in ur- yeah. rural areas. Well, in cities, they're getting into gardens, they're getting into rose bushes, they're getting into all sorts of uh, 
One of the problems that we see a lot, actually, is they get into cemeteries and do terrible damage, tearing up the ground and just uh, terrible, simply awful. And also, I mean, aside from the destruction, they're dangerous, right? I mean, I'm taking a look at the warning signs that have gone up around Lamont, and they're telling people, keep a distance, keep your dogs on a leash, make sure your children are close by. I mean, they can be dangerous too, right? Absolutely, yeah. These things are very, very large. And, you know, one of the reasons we call them super pigs is because these wild boar that were brought over in the 80s and 90s were crossed with domestic pigs, and so that really supercharged them. Uh, We call that hybrid vigor, and so when you cross those animals, they become, uh, in this case, much larger. Like the biggest one we've handled, uh, 638 pounds. I mean, these things are absolutely massive. They have razor-sharp tusks. They're often traveling in groups that we call sounders, and they can, uh, you know, they can be dangerous. They generally avoid people. And certainly this is one of the, the, the probably the only upside of, of hunting of pigs is it does keep that fear in them to a degree here. But, you know, just uh, not that long ago in Texas, a woman was uh, right near her house in, a, in an urban environment and a group of pigs actually took her down and killed her. So, oh so certainly death and injury is possible. And so I certainly support that notion of staying away. Uh, you know, keeping your pets in check and, and keep a hold of your kids. They're, they're not, you know, we haven't seen any real incidents here in Canada, but we do know globally that they're an issue and they can be super aggressive. And, and one of the things that they've learned a lot too is that if they're aggressive to people, say, for example, they hang around in some European cities around grocery stores and they charge at people just to simply to scare them and get them to drop their food, and then they gobble up those uh, groceries and away they go. And, you know, you look at several cities in Spain right now, they're having huge problems. Re- Rome is have, has really significant issues with uh, their wild boar uh, being aggressive towards people. You know, not long ago, Ryan, I think it was you. It was your group that was talking about Edmonton needs to pay attention because we, we know they were found in our Drossen, which for our listeners is literally... 20 minutes to the east of Edmonton. And I think at that time you were saying, yeah, well, I mean, this is how it works. And you wouldn't be surprised to see them show up in the River Valley in Edmonton. Um, is that still something that concerns you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a very high probability. Uh, given especially how wild pigs are expanding still on the prairies, we're still seeing a rapid expansion uh, of, of uh, new into new areas. And so as they expand, they're getting closer and closer to cities and and certainly, you know, here in Saskatoon, we're running a network of trail cameras on the, basically with the feeling that it's not a matter of, of if they will show up, but just when they will start to show up in the city. And having a river valley makes, uh, creates a almost ideal habitat corridor for wildlife to come in. And certainly pigs are well known to follow these riparian corridors and use them. So I think that's a very real risk for a number of cities, including Brandon, Saskatoon, and certainly Edmonton. Is it too late? I mean, is this just a foregone conclusion, or are there things we can do now, Ryan, to try and make sure that we don't have, you know, a situation like you mentioned in in parts of Europe happening in Edmonton and Calgary and Red Deer and other major centers in Alberta dealing with, you know, huge populations of wild pigs? Oh, absolutely. I think control efforts are ramping up, and I, I certainly support uh, the efforts of the Alberta provincial government in terms of uh, ramping up their tramping program, uh, joining, they have a squeal on pigs program where the public can report 
and I hope they do report to a squeal on pigs anytime they see any kind of a pig outside of a fence that should be reported for sure. Unfortunately, Albert also came up with this uh, re-implementing a bounty program. Yeah. That is a very major step backward, um, and that increases my concern that pigs are going to be spread around the landscape. This is the reason why there is no scientific basis for, and certainly I would never support a, you know, a bounty-type program for hunters. Okay, explain that to me, because I've heard that before, Ryan. It's, you're right, it's $75 per set of wild boar ears that a hunter turns in. Why, why don't you reckon, why, why is that a problem? Well, at first count, you would look and say, well, they're removing animals. That's great. And that is true. And as I earlier mentioned, you know, I think the one positive from sport hunting is it does maintain what we call landscape of fear. As animals are hunted, they become less likely to come near people and wander into yards and that sort of thing. But overall, in terms of of, uh, population control, we know that sport hunting is in fact, is if you want lots of pigs, then introduce and support sport hunting because uh, you see, say you see a group of 10 hunters shoot at it, they'll probably kill two to three, very likely, but the chance of getting all of them is very close to zero. And, and those that are left over, they become scared and they run into new areas, so they spread them around the landscape. And that group of 10, so they killed three, but then they split the remainder up into two or smaller groups that run in different directions. And so that it, that does a very effective job of spreading around okay. the landscape. They also become more nocturnal and very, very elusive. And so we've had open season across the Canadian prairies for, you know, a couple of decades now. And unfortunately, in, in fact, in act opposite to that, we've seen this exponential increase. So there's no evidence that sport hunting works and lots of evidence that sport hunting makes it worse. So certainly... Probably the worst thing you could do to facilitate this getting worse is uh, is a bounty program. Interesting. What about the trapping program, where if you can yeah, eliminate sure. an entire sounder, as you call it, or a herd of pigs, whatever, uh, th- that that way is also another route that you can go. Does that work better? That seems like at least you wouldn't get the dispersion then that you're talking about. That's exactly right. And so really well done trapping, which uh, the province has done a lot of and it's ramped up even more. That is a bright light for sure in the program and is uh, incredibly effective. And so, yeah, you find 10 and you don't slam that trap down until you've counted 10 walking in and you take out the entire group. And that can be highly effective and is certainly part of a a strategy to, uh, you know, to eliminate and ideally over the long term eradicate wild pigs. All right, so it's not a lost cause at this point, but we've got to be really careful. It sounds like we're sort of, I mean, if you're seeing them in places like Lamont and they're just outside of Edmonton, um, time is of the essence here. It's not like they're, you know, the problem's getting better. It seems to be getting worse, Ryan. Well, absolutely. They're expanding. And during the time you and I have been talking for the last for almost 14 minutes, uh, there's probably been a, at least one litter of piglets dropped on the landscape. Uh, they're, you know, that prolific. And so oh. urgency is critical and, You know, unfortunately, since 2010, we've been saying this over and over and over uh, that, you know, these are expanding rapidly. And the longer you wait, the more expensive and more difficult it's going to be. You know, wild pig occurrences occupy over one million square kilometers in Canada right now. So while, you know, a lot of folks are talking about eradication, uh, that's going to require a major, major effort here. And certainly one of the challenges in Alberta is that there is an absolutely exploding population in Saskatchewan right next door as well. So it's not just what Alberta does, but what Alberta's neighbor does as well. 
Yeah, because they don't they don't care about borders either. Boy, scary stuff. Ryan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good to talk to you. Take care. You bet. That is Ryan Brook. Ryan is an associate professor of agriculture at the University of Saskatchewan and director of the Canada Wild Pig Research Project. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.